Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization Projects podcast, funded by Carnegie Corporation. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Thomas Junot. Thomas is an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. He's done a great deal of research on the Middle East with a particular focus on the Yemen conflict. He's written extensively on, on what's happening in Yemen, the role of Iran, the role of Saudi Arabia, the role of the Emirates. And it's really exciting to have Thomas here today to, to talk about these issues. So, Thomas, thank you for giving us your time. It's really exciting to have you on. Thanks a lot for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Thomas, as a as a as a Canadian, what got you interested in in Middle Eastern politics and and Yemen and Iran? What was it that drove you into this? Um, it really started after my master's, uh, more than 15 years ago now, where I decided to join the Canadian government as opposed to continue to do a PhD right away. So I ended up working for 11 years with Canada's Department of National Defense. Right. Uh, and it's, it's during those years where I realized, A, I'm really interested in the Middle East. So I got to work as a strategic analyst working on, on the Middle East. In those years, if you remember 2006, 7, 8, there was a lot of... Uh, you know, work going on. Will the U.S. attack Iran? Will Israel so, attack yeah. Iran? So that got me working on that file. That was really interesting, following the nuclear program, the evolution of that. Um, and then I realized over the years, I really want to go deeper in this. So I did a Ph.D. Um, here in the city of Ottawa while I was still working at Defense. When I finished the PhD, I continued working in the government, but realized I really wanted to, to dive deeper into this. So I ended up in 2014 getting a job here at the University of Ottawa. Amazing. So what was your what was your master's in, if you don't mind me asking? My master's was actually slightly to the northeast in that I focused on Central Asia, um, which uh, was absolutely fascinating. Um, oh, I bet, yeah. It, it, that really started out of a fluke. I remember reading for one class some international crisis group reports on Uzbekistan right. uh, and, and being fascinated by that. And then in the summer of 2002, I, th- I spent three months hitchhiking across Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Xinjiang, oh, wow. uh, and, and all those areas. Um, so that was a that was a clear interest at, at that point, I edited a book with a professor in French uh, in those years on, on Central Asia. Right. Uh, but once I reached national defense after 2003, I realized, uh, to my dismay initially, but that there was very little interest <laughs> for the stands in the Canadian government. So I migrated right. southwest, if you will, to, to the Middle East. That's that's really, really interesting. I don't think I've, I've interviewed a number of people for the show. I don't think I've heard anyone say that their way into the Middle East was Uzbekistan and the, the other stands. So I think you're certainly unique in that respect. It was a fascinating region to study. Yeah, I bet, I bet. At some point, I hope I'll come back to it. Well, fingers crossed. And then your, your PhD, is that what was published by Stanford in 2015? Yes, so my PhD, I chose to work on Iran, really f- because I was obviously fascinated by the country, but for the pragmatic reason that since I was working with the government and doing the PhD at the same time, pooling my resources uh, by working on Iran and the government and doing my PhD on it, that allowed me to, to you know, cross-pollinate a bit or build on the knowledge I was acquiring, acquiring on both sides. Sure. Um, so I ended up working on Iranian foreign policy. 
And then uh, after I was done with the PhD, I sent the manuscript to Stanford uh, University Press, and it was published in 2015, so a bit after I started here at the university. Sure, well, it's very exciting, and it's a really interesting read that, so uh, yeah, definitely worth checking out if, if people haven't done already. I just want to ask you a little bit, uh, Thomas, you, you use neoclassical realism for, for looking at Iranian foreign policy. Now, this is probably taking you back a little bit, but what was it about neoclassical realism that that thought that, that made you think that this would be a useful way of, of understanding Iranian foreign policy? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and initially, uh, dating going back to my master's, I was mostly sympathetic to realism in the sense that I, I considered that as nasty as, as the description of international affairs that it does um, is, I thought that it was the most accurate. But I was always uncomfortable with realism, especially the structural variants, because it was too rigid, uh, too general. Uh, really, the focus on parsimony, I thought, was theoretically uh, appropriate, but in the real world, just not useful enough. And then I remember falling on on some of the early neoclassical realist writings and the flexibility and the eclecticism that it that it puts on the table, I thought, just made a realist framework much more usable in terms of actually analyzing a country's foreign policy as opposed to uh, you know looking fifty thousand feet up in the air at grand principles of, of international politics. And, and in the Iranian case, I get that. I guess that offers a great deal more than the, the standard uh, structural realist that Waltz would would uh, endorse. I guess. Exactly, because uh, structural realism will tell you about you know the, the environment in which a state operates, uh, which is useful. You need that, but to really dive into that country's foreign policy, into the details of what, in my case, Iran does in Syria, what it does uh, with regards to Iraq or with its nuclear program, uh, you you need to open the black box of the state. You need to understand its domestic politics, um, its perceptions of its environment, and so on to to better analyze it. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly sympathetic. To, to that type of approach. Just methodologically and sort of intellectually, I guess, has, has your position changed in the in the years after you wrote that? Some, what, I guess, five, six years ago since you wrote it and four years ago since it came out. Has thing, have things changed intellectually for you, do you think? Uh, at a high level, no. I still find that neoclassical realism is very useful. I still very sure. much... Uh, adhere to its 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 eclecticism, its flexibility, um, and I still am, am not overly bothered by the criticism that that it is a bit ad hoc, uh, it, because for me that's that's the point. Sure. Um, it has evolved a bit in the sense that you know as as you look at different countries and different issues, some of the details change. But overall, I still find that it's a useful uh, useful approach. Okay, that's that's good to know. Cause when I when I go through your stuff and it's it's fascinating. Your, your stuff on Yemen and Syria is really really interesting. Your beef and peace and international affairs in particular is is really important. But it seems to me that 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 deals with with the complexity of of, of politics that isn't necessarily state politics. I mean, we look at events in Yemen and Syria and. And they, they seem to be so far removed from the traditional realist state politics that that others would would put forward. No, and, and that's a perfectly valid point. So, uh, you know, I, 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 if anybody asks me, you know, what am I? I would say roughly I'm a realist, but I am absolutely not doctrinaire in, 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 or rigid in, in, in that sense. So sure. I have no problem in, in writing uh, different pieces that are not realist or that do not use realism. And for me, that's not a contradiction. Theory yeah, yeah. is a tool, right? That yeah, is exactly. applicable in certain circumstances and not in others. So the, the Iran and Yemen paper in international affairs, uh, that, which is 20 
2016, if I remember well. It is, um, yeah. It, it, that paper does not have a, a theoretical framework. Um, is it inconsistent with realism? Probably wouldn't be, but but for me, that's just besides the point. I think that that's where my, you know, I, I spent 11 years in government before joining yeah. academia, and, and I'm still very closely in touch with a lot of people in, in government, right? We're in sure. Ottawa. Yeah, We're of course. Literally across the street. <laughs> right. and so, you know, for me, Writing pieces like this one, for example, on Iran and Yemen, without using theory, is is essential because yeah. that that makes it much more readable for people who actually work in government. Sure, of course. Sorry, I didn't mean this to go down a sort of an existentialist route. <laughs> I was just there. It, it, it's interesting hearing hearing the evolution of people's thoughts. But can you tell us more a bit about your work in Yemen? Then, so for people who've not had the the pleasure of reading it, what is it that you're trying to get at when you're looking at at events in Yemen? Uh, so just just on a tiny bit of background, in 2007, I wanted to spend a few months in the Middle East to, to study Arabic, which I had been starting to study back at that point. And I chose to go to Yemen to, to do that because I thought it looked really interesting, but also because it was the least expensive uh, option <laughs> sure. uh, and also an environment where quite literally extremely few people spoke English, which is way better to immerse yourself in the language. Uh, so I did that in 2007 and since then have stayed very interested in the country, which is maybe the most beautiful place and the most interesting place I've ever been to of all of all my travels. Um, so over the years, I've done a number of pieces on, on Yemen. Uh, and, and the 2016 one was, in a way, a, a bit of logical evolution, because I had looked at Iran, I had looked at Yemen. So looking at the two of them together was, uh, was, was really interesting for me. And what really drove that article was uh, getting irritated at constant references in the in the Western media, but also in some of the Middle Eastern media, of the Houthis as proxies of Iran, sure. uh, yeah. of Iran as dominating a fourth Arab capital in Sana'a, in, in Yemen, um, which which I knew was inaccurate, but I wanted to actually write something about it to document it. Uh, so that's how that article came came into being. So I went through you know, UN reports, media reports, anecdotal reports, informal interviews, and so on, uh, to really document what, what I thought was the reality of Iran's limited role in Yemen. And I think you do a great job um, of doing that. Just before we go further in the article, I interviewed Justin Gengler just the other day for, for one of these. And, and Justin said the same thing about going to Yemen to study Arabic about the same time as you. So I, I'm curious if you cross paths, but also for the same reasons that it was a place where you could really immerse yourself in, in the language and you weren't sort of dragged into to speaking English or French or, or whatever other. You were forced to do that. You immersed yourself in it. So that's it's quite interesting that you were there at roughly the same time for the same sort of intellectual, pedagogical reasons. But um, I, I certainly sympathize with your, with your argument about the Houthis. I mean, you look at Western literature and, and um, media outlets, the Houthis are a, a Yemeni ally. Sorry, the Houthis are an Iranian ally, an Iranian proxy doing the bidding of Tehran, Right. But then this this article that you propose the the article that you've done really strips that back and and takes through the Iranian strategic goals and the types of relationships between the two. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, sure. So the, what what I do in that article is that I I, I first of all I, I try to document keeping in mind the obvious but extremely important point that. 
there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of information that is that is clearly not available publicly. That we don't know the details of what exactly Iran does in Yemen. Sure. Still, we can we can still have a good idea to, at a general level. Uh, so I document the evolution of of Iran's involvement with the Houthis, where contacts started in a very informal way in the 1990s. And of course, some of the Houthi leaders and family members traveled to Tehran and Qom in in the 90s. Uh, but that's that was really symbolic, right? That was not actual support or 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 anything. Sure, yeah. uh, throughout the 2000s, when the first rounds of fighting between the Houthis and the central government from 2004 to 10, especially, uh, started, uh, you know, Iranian interest started popping up. Uh, Iranian advisors, you know, contacts started increasing, but remained very marginal. Uh, documents obtained through WikiLeaks, for example, show the American embassy around 2009 still saying, despite what President Saleh in Yemen says, we do not see any Iranian support for the Houthis. Yeah. It's really over the years after that that it slowly started increasing. So, you know, I, we, we don't have time here to go into the details of 2011 and 12 and 14. Um, but for for Iran, the, the, the trend is clearly one of increasing support to the Houthis until the article in 2016 and since, right? That trend has continued to increase. Um, but the bottom line of that article, which I do not think has changed since 2016, even though the amount of support still continues to increase, is A, Iranian support for the Houthis is limited. It increases, but it remains limited, especially in relative terms. Yeah. Um, the Houthis are not completely dependent on Iranian support. They have access to other sources for weapons. They have looted Yemeni army stockpiles. They have absorbed weapons from units or militias previously loyal to President Saleh. Uh, and fundamentally, this Iranian support does not change the balance of forces, the fundamental dynamics of the war in Yemen. It's not a game changer in any way. From Iran's perspective, why do they do this? Well, it obviously established a foothold on the southern underbelly, which has always been a weak spot for its chief regional rival, Saudi Arabia. It's it's a way at a low cost. I mean, for Iran, this cost is in the millions of dollars per year, maybe the tens of millions, but not more than that. This is really small. To poke Saudi Arabia in the eye, to contribute a bit to bog Saudi Arabia down in Yemen, but this support is not responsible for Saudi Arabia being completely bogged down in this costly war in Yemen. It just contributes to it. So in this way, it is reactive. It is not proactive. But it's a good investment. And that, I think, is, is part of the title of that 2016 article. And it's 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 its ultimate conclusion. It's a small investment and with a good return. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's really interesting to see how you how you structure that over time. And and the exploration of those U.S. diplomatic cables is, is really fascinating and quite revealing in terms of of, of the roots of these um, of these links and relations, and it's I mean, it, it's interesting to see that as a process of securitization, which I guess is is the subject of a different conversation. But strategically, what do you think the limits of Iran's capabilities and intentions are in Yemen? Uh, that's a good question because one thing to keep in mind is that for Iran, Yemen is not a priority. Uh, Yemen is really not its most important foreign policy theater where it focuses a lot of its attention. It's it's a bonus, if you will. It sees Saudi Arabia being bogged down in Yemen uh, and it figures, okay, I'll just put a bit of resources to contribute to that. But for Iran, the most important countries uh, where it focuses a lot of its its its, its energy uh, is Iraq, it's Syria, it's its relationship with Hezbollah, 
it's 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 conflict with Israel, it's conflict with Saudi Arabia, but as it plays out in other parts of of the region, uh, Yemen, you know, depending on how you define these terms, it's a second or even a third tier priority, but it's clearly not even close from being a first tier one. Right. But conversely, for Saudi Arabia, Yemen is of, of massive strategic importance. It is, and that's why Iran, you know, turns a bit of an eye towards Yemen. For Saudi Arabia, you know, as much as I have been very critical of, of Saudi Arabia's overreaction in Yemen, as much as I have been very critical of its decision to launch this massive intervention that is, that is you know, reducing Yemen to rubble, yeah. um, there is a, a, from Saudi Arabia's perspective, whoever, whatever we think about MBS, whatever we think about Saudi Arabia in general, the reality is that objectively, if there is such a thing, uh, what happens in Yemen is a legitimate, serious concern for Saudi Arabia. So it's it's completely normal, rational, unavoidable for Saudi Arabia to be invested in Yemen. That being said, its, its reaction to the Houthi takeover since 2014, its launch of the intervention in 2015, has been a massive overreaction. And and the, the irony of this is that from Saudi Arabia's perspective, there are a number of reasons why it has intervened in Yemen, two of them being counter Iran, counter Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP. There are others too, of course. Um, but its intervention has had the exact opposite effect. It has benefited Iran and in a complicated way, it has also benefited AQAP. So from Iran's perspective, it is it is picking up the pieces, if you will. It is benefiting from Saudi Arabia's mistakes more than anything else. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the devastating thing is the price that the Yemenis themselves are paying caught in this this real mess and this 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 seemingly intractable struggle between these two great regional powers. Just to speculate for a minute, Thomas, where do you see things going in Yemen? I am, am extremely pessimistic about, uh, unfortunately, about the future of Yemen uh, at multiple levels. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about the Stockholm process, which is trying to, to establish a ceasefire in Hodeida and, and the West, sea, West Coast port. Uh, that may succeed. You know, I don't know if it's a 50-50 chance or maybe a bit less than that, that that, that will succeed. Um, but what's important to keep in mind is that the Stockholm process, the steps that have been proposed for that, are only the first steps in trying to build confidence between the two sides in building towards an eventual larger peace process. Uh, but right now, the Houthis are deeply entrenched. They are not perceiving that it is uh, advantageous for them to seriously compromise. Saudi Arabia has blown hot and cold, but I don't think that it is ready at this point to seriously compromise. The UAE would be willing to do that a bit more, but but it, it's, its influence on Saudi is real but limited. Sure. Um, but beyond that, the major problem is that you know, the Saudi, the, the Yemeni civil war is not a war of side A versus side B. The different sides are extremely fragmented, and the center on each side has limited command and control on its multiple elements. Um, and at this, the most problematic is that at the center on the government side, President Hadi is extremely weak. He does not have strong control uh, on the different sides of that coalition. Uh, so really, there's limited capability for him to, to seriously move forward in a peace process. Yeah, and that's it's quite a depressing tale, I guess. Just on that point, before we, we move on, and I'm conscious we're running out of time very quickly, but before we move on, how how important do you think sect-based identities are now? I mean, we know that in the past they they weren't all that important, that, that tribal dynamics were far more important, but 
But how important do you think they are right now within the context of this sort of this sectarianization of regional politics, if you will? Specifically in the case of Yemen, I think that they're not very important. I think that they, they have uh, most likely increased in importance in the last few years uh, for a number of reasons, as the Houthis themselves have taken on a slightly more sectarian dimension in their overall identity, as uh, groups on the other side, AQAP, various Salafist militias, some of them supported by the UAE, are, are taking a, on a more important role in the war. That being said, I still do not define the the Yemeni war, both its domestic dimension and its regional dimension with multiple powers intervening in sectarian terms. I I don't think that it's a defining feature of of that multifaceted war. I don't think that it's certainly uh, not a driver. Um, That being said, it is somewhat increasing in importance uh, because it is being mobilized by some of these actors. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's where I guess it gets worrying, the fact that that is situated within the broader geopolitical regional struggle that that we're seeing playing out across the region. Um, Toma, I have one final question for you, and it, it would be remiss of me with you on the podcast not to ask you about the recent developments between Canada and Saudi Arabia, the, the recent spat and how things are playing out there. Just can you share some some initial thoughts as someone who's who's been out to Saudi and spent time working there, researching there, and as someone who's who's had a, a good career in the Canadian government, what's your take on this? Uh, so that's an interesting question. And usually, you know, until a few months ago, when I you know, there was very limited interest in, in Canada's presence in, in Saudi Arabia, out, in, in the Middle East, outside of Canada. But because of that spat, it has increased that interest a bit. Uh, the spat, from a, 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 a public perspective, came as a surprise when Saudi Arabia, in August of last year, decided to expel the Canadian ambassador, recall its own uh, from Ottawa. In practice, it should not have come as much of a surprise. And beneath the surface, I could really see tensions bubbling between the two countries. Um, Long story short, mainly because of the famous 15 billion Canadian dollar or about 12 billion American dollar deal for Saudi to purchase light armored vehicles from Canada. Uh, Saudi had announced that uh, purchase about five years ago. And when Saudi Arabia makes large weapons purchases like that from uh, Western countries, the US and others, it's not only because it needs these weapons, right? It's an investment in the partnership with these countries. Um, But on the Canadian side, Early on, there was interest in deepening relationships with Saudi Arabia on the trade side, on the academic side, on the scientific side, and so on. Um, But politically, that became untenable for the current Trudeau government, uh, which tries to brand itself as feminist and as progressive, um, because the Canadian media was extremely critical of of Canada selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, especially in the context of the war in Yemen. So on the Canadian side, there was really a decision, well, we're going to take your money uh, and, and sell you weapons but we're not going to talk to you very much about much of anything else. So on the Saudi side, this was perceived as as a bit of getting ripped off uh, yeah. because they saw this as not respecting the deal. So tension was was bubbling beneath the surface. Then in August, uh, tweets sent by the Canadian Foreign Ministry criticizing human rights in Saudi Arabia and things explode. Um, 
things have not really moved since then, and I don't really expect them to move for the foreseeable future. I see this, if, if you will, as a bit of a frozen conflict uh, between the two countries. Right. On the Saudi side, there's very little, limited um, willingness to walk back. This was a signal that Saudi Arabia sent to other Western countries, criticize us and you will be penalized. Uh, so, so to walk back, to reconcile, would dilute that message. On the Canadian side, we have a federal election in October of this year, in six or seven months. Um, and for this government to be perceived as, as seeking to reconcile with Saudi Arabia would not be a political winner because Saudi Arabia has extremely bad press in, the, in this country. Sure. So there's just not enough incentives on, on both sides to move ahead. Is it, is it still getting traction in the, is it getting coverage in the, in the Canadian media? Not much anymore, right? I mean, when it happened in August of last year, it was obviously spectacular. You have sure. to put yourselves in, in, in our shoes here in Canada. We are not used to having, uh, uh, you know, uh, high visibility disputes with other countries like that. It doesn't happen a lot. So when it happened, there was a lot of media attention, a lot of surprise for many Canadians. Um, but ultimately, relations with Saudi Arabia are not very important for this country. Bilateral trade between us is three is about three to four billion Canadian dollars, so a bit less than a American dollars, that is really not big. Sure. Uh, there are a few sectors like academia where there are a lot of Saudi students here, but beyond that, it's just gotten fallen off the radar uh, most of the time. That's that's really interesting. So I guess one to watch in the in the medium term rather than the short term is what you're saying. Yeah, Great. exactly. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for giving us up, uh, giving up your time and, and speaking to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating, and and uh, I look forward to to seeing what you do with your your next stages of your research on Yemen. I know there's some stuff on on Saudi in Yemen and the Emirates in Yemen, so I look forward to seeing how those pan out in the not too distant future. Hopefully, it comes out pretty soon. I'm sure it will. Fingers crossed. But thank you again, Thomas. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to you. This was great. Thank you. So until the next time, goodbye.